I'm very glad that we get to celebrate Easter in the middle of our lockdown because the life, the death and the resurrection of Jesus really give us hope and eternal encouragement at a time like this. In the Greek Orthodox Church on Easter Sunday morning, uh, congregation members will say to each other, Christos Anesti, which means Christ is risen. And the answer comes back, Aliothos Anesti, he is risen indeed. And so if you're with someone this morning, maybe you'd like to turn to them and say, Christ is risen, and they can reply, he is risen indeed. Or maybe you could WhatsApp somebody and say, Christ is risen, and see if they know the correct answer to that, he is risen indeed. This is a very strange Easter Sunday morning for us. For the first and hopefully last time in our lives, churches around the world are celebrating Easter by not meeting together. It's just a tragic picture of these sad and scary days. But perhaps it's good to be reminded that actually that first Easter Sunday was a little similar to this in several ways. We tend to think of Easter Sunday as including triumph and rejoicing and praise, and it does. But Matthew tells us that that first Easter, the women were very afraid. The disciples were so scared they stayed indoors in a group small enough to satisfy the coronavirus quarantine. And Mark ends his gospel by saying, Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anybody because they were afraid. Fear and sorrow and bewilderment were part of that first Easter. But Jesus meets these people at the point of their fear and sadness, and he meets us there too. To the woman, Jesus said, do not be afraid. And to the disciples in the upper room, he declared, peace be with you. I'd like to pick up on this theme a little bit further this morning and to do so from the Gospel of John and through the eyes of Mary Magdalene. If you've had a chance to look at the readings I sent you, you will know that Mary Magdalene was among the women who went to the tomb to anoint Jesus's body on that first Easter Sunday. The other Gospels just mention Mary, but John in his Gospel focuses in on her story. Just to say that when you read through the four Gospels and their accounts of the resurrection, it can be a bit confusing. Who did Jesus appear to first? Who was there? Was there one angel or was there two? Who did he see next? Some people feel that the Gospel writers even contradict each other and they see that as being evidence that the whole thing is just made up. But actually, to me, that's the greatest indication that the story is true. If you and some of your friends got into trouble at school and were sat outside the principal's office and you decided to lie about what had happened, what would be the first thing you'd do? You'd all agree on the same story you were going to tell. Let's make sure we all say the same thing. Let's make sure our story is the same. The fact that the gospel writers are comfortable in each telling the story in their own way and seemingly contradicting each other demonstrates the authenticity of this event. But let's have a look at John chapter 20, and we're going to read the first 18 verses. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, 
Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who'd reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb, crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I'll get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Mary followed Jesus all the way through his ministry. She followed him all across Galilee and Nazareth. She followed him into the city of Jerusalem. She followed him all the way to the foot of the cross, which is more than can be said for the male disciples. And she followed his dead body all the way to the tomb. She was among the group of women who saw where Jesus' body was laid. And now this Sunday morning she comes again to the grave to anoint Jesus' body. She is a whole-hearted follower of Jesus. And the reason for her devotion is because of what Jesus had done for her. Luke introduces Mary to us in chapter 8 of his Gospel. The name Mary comes from the Hebrew name Miriam and possibly means beloved. And her surname refers to the place where she came from, the city of Magda, on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. So she is Mary Magdalene, just as Jesus was the Nazarene, referring to the place. She isn't to be confused with the prostitute who washes Jesus' feet in Luke chapter 7. Uh, Luke makes a distinction between these two ladies. She is the one who's described in chapter 8 as a lady out of whom Jesus had cast seven demons. Now, I'm not quite sure what demon possession would have meant for Mary Magdalene. The Bible doesn't describe her symptoms, 
But in the New Testament, we read about many different people who had demons, and so perhaps we could infer some possible symptoms from those other descriptions. We know, for example, that very often demon-possessed people were violent. There was the man Legion, who couldn't even be bound up with chains because he would break them. Sometimes demon possession went along with physical disability, so we have one man who was mute and another who was both blind and mute because of demon possession. There's a young boy who suffers from seizures and also self-destructive behaviour. The demon threw him into the fire or into water. It certainly affected social interaction. We read about the demon-possessed man who didn't wear clothes at all or live in a house but lived out in the tombs. So Mary would have been a social outcast, unable to marry or have a normal family. She wouldn't have been in control of herself, her actions, her words. She would have been tormented by powers beyond her control. It must have been a hell-on-earth existence. And one day Jesus puts his hand on Mary and he heals her. Basically, he gives her her life back. And from that moment on, we read that Mary followed Jesus. Mark actually uses the technical term for follow in his gospel. He describes her then as a disciple. And whenever she's listed among a group of women in the New Testament, her name is mentioned first. So Luke tells us in chapter 8, Jesus traveled around from one town and village to another proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who'd been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support the disciples out of their own means. So Mary gives us a great picture of what it means to be a disciple then, pouring out one's life out of love for the one who has rescued us. That's what it means to be a disciple. As I said, it's Mary who was there at the foot of the cross on Friday afternoon, and Mary who watched where Nicodemus and Joseph lay Jesus' body Friday evening. And it's Mary who is up early, before dawn, on this Sunday morning to go to the tomb, not expecting to see the risen Lord Jesus, but expecting to prepare his body for burial. She'd been healed of so much, and so she loved much. Think about how she must have been feeling that Sunday morning. She'd just witnessed the death of her best friend, some of you know what it is like to lose a family member or friend. But remember that this wasn't just any death that Mary had witnessed. Mary had witnessed the terrible, tortured death of Jesus on a cross, which must have been a terribly traumatic event. But then there's more. She comes to the tomb and sees that the stone has been removed just by the way, that word removed is a very important word. It means to remove with violence and force. It doesn't imply that the stone had simply rolled back in its groove, but rather that it had been picked up and forcibly moved away. But Mary sees that the body is no longer there. 
And she goes running back to the disciples and tells them they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. As one writer puts it, someone had removed the stone, afraid he would become a saint, afraid his tomb would become a shrine. Someone had taken him away, God knew where, to a steep cliff, to the town dump. His body was all that she had left and now it too was gone. Well, Peter and John arrive at the tomb and they see something very extraordinary, that although the grave clothes are there, the body is missing. Why would any grave robber first undress the body before removing it? And even if they were looking for jewellery, why would they go to all of the trouble of carefully wrapping up the grave clothes again? Thieves aren't known for tidying up after themselves. It didn't make any sense. And so Peter and John go back home wondering what has happened. But Mary remains at the tomb. One writer says she was like an abandoned puppy who has lost her master, staying rooted to the last place he had been without the least idea of what to do next. And we read that she weeps, which is not just a quiet shedding of tears as we in the West tend to express our grief, but rather a loud wailing and lamenting, like you see on television of people in the Middle East who mourn. We know that Mary is in an absolute state because even two angels can't shake her out of it. And when she encounters someone who she thinks is the gardener, she's basically incoherent and illogical. Tell me where you've put him. A gardener wouldn't have known who she was talking about. I'll go and fetch him. How is she going to be able to carry the weight of a body all by herself? Mary has hit rock bottom. Her best friend is dead. The person who had healed her and given her her life back is gone. Did that mean that the demons would now return? How could she carry on? How could life ever be the same again? And so she weeps. But you know, it's not just Mary who weeps on this Easter Sunday morning. All of us here this morning weep. Most obviously, we are experiencing grief in a national and international pandemic. Fear, anger, denial, sadness, depression. We've never experienced anything like this in our lives. But in addition to this worldwide crisis, there may well be other more personal griefs and sorrows today. The Methodist minister Trevor Hudson says this, Each of us sit next to a pool of tears. Our pools are different. Some are deeper. Some are muddier. Some have been caused by what has been done to us. Some are the result of our own doing. It might have been the death of a loved one, the pain of divorce, abuse as a child, the unmet longing for a partner, the loss of a job, or a rejection by a close friend, there are so many different kinds of pools. All of us weep on some level this morning. And to me then, it's so significant and meaningful that it's in the midst of her grief that Mary encounters the living Lord Jesus. And Jesus asks her two important questions. Firstly, he asks her, 
why are you crying? That's quite a good question. One of the older Bible commentators points out that Mary really didn't have any reason to cry. If she had found what she was looking for, the dead body of Jesus to anoint, then she would have had every reason to cry. And so would we. Indeed, all of creation would have had reason to cry if Mary had found the dead body of our Lord Jesus on that morning. But then Jesus asks a second question. Who is it you are looking for? And I think that behind that question, there is an invitation. Jesus knows who it is that she is looking for, but he invites her to tell him anyway. Jesus doesn't say to her, stop crying, cheer up, don't you know it's Easter Sunday morning? He invites her to share her pain with him, and she does. Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. And this morning Jesus invites us too to tell him about our pain, because he knows all about it already. He knows the depths of our hearts this morning. He knows the things that trouble us. He knows the different situations through and through. And perhaps today we could come before him and tell him all about it. Lord, I'm scared. Lord, my marriage is in pain. Lord, my children aren't following you. Lord, I feel I'm in the dark. Lord, my business is in real trouble. Lord, I'm lonely. Lord, I don't know what to do and you seem far away. Jesus invites us to bring our lives before him. He knows what's there, but he invites us to tell him. And to tell him in the light of Easter Sunday, in the light of the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. As we saw on Friday, the suffering and death of the Lord Jesus remind us that we don't have a God who lives a million miles away and can't identify or sympathize with our weaknesses but we have one who has experienced it all, all but the sin. The atheist philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche ridiculed the idea of God on a cross. He laughed at the idea of a God of the weak, the poor and the oppressed. But in the real world of pain and suffering, how could we worship a God who was immune to suffering? Edward Shillito was not a particularly good poet of the 1900s, but one of the poems really stands out. It's called Jesus of the Scars. Shillito was devastated by the trauma of World War I, and in that poem he writes these lines. Speaking of Jesus, he says, The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds only God's wounds can speak, and not a God has wounds, but thou alone. We can bring our pain to Jesus because he knows and understands. As Paul puts it, what shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? 
Knowing all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus has gone through all of those things for us, and so he knows and understands and invites us to him. I love what happens next in this encounter. To me, this is one of the most beautiful passages in the whole of Scripture. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. For Mary, it wasn't a case of seeing is believing. It was a case of hearing is believing. Earlier on in John's Gospel, Jesus had said, The shepherd calls his own sheep by name, and his sheep follow him, because they know his voice. When I was a young pastor, I wasn't always sure how to address people who were older than me, and I remember once going to a hospital to visit one of the older members of my congregation, and I prayed for him, and throughout the prayer referred to him as Mr. Hutton. And after I'd finished praying, he turned to me and said, Thank you so much, but Jesus knows me as Martin. Jesus knows you by name this morning. In Isaiah chapter 43 in the Old Testament, God speaks these beautiful words to the nation of Israel, but they apply to us this morning too. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, he who formed you, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name and you are mine. And in the situation in which we find ourselves today, we should probably read on a bit. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Saviour. You are precious and honoured in my sight, and I love you. And the good news of this Easter Sunday is that no matter what anyone else may say about us or to us, we have a God who knows us intimately, who has created us and formed us and crafted us just as we are. We are his workmanship. Not only that, but he laid down his life for us to bring us to himself. And he keeps on calling our name every day and every moment of every day. Andrew, I'm not just a blip in an infinite universe. I'm known by name and am deeply loved. That's the good news of this Easter Sunday morning, that we have a God who loves us passionately, seeks us earnestly, calls us by name, and longs to have a personal relationship with us. And what should our response be to this? Well, look at Mary's response, verse 16. She turned toward him. That word turned here is one that is often used to describe repentance in the Bible. To repent is simply to turn. When we hear the word repent, we often think of a stern-faced man holding a sign announcing, Repent, for the end is near. But here in verse 16, we get a wonderful visual picture of what repentance is all about. Repentance is simply turning. 
toward Jesus. As one writer puts it, Repentance may involve feeling remorse for what we have done, but it's never about earning acceptance, deserving forgiveness, or trying to earn God's favour. True repentance is something altogether different. It involves a complete turning around of our mind and outlook, one that leaves us facing a new direction towards Jesus. And this morning, the living Lord Jesus is calling us to do the same, to turn to him, to turn away from ourselves, our self-interest, our self-absorption, our selfishness, and to turn to him. We cannot come to the living Lord Jesus this Easter Sunday morning and go away from here the same people. We have to turn. This wasn't the first time that Mary had turned to Jesus. The first time she'd turned to him was in that dramatic encounter when he had healed her. And now here is another turning, which simply suggests that turning is not a once-off, been-there-done-that experience, but rather a daily reordering of my life, a day-by-day, even moment-by-moment, turning away from my own wants and desires and turning towards Jesus. One writer puts it this way, Mary reminds us that repentance is not a once-and-for-all experience. Repentance is a way of life, a lifelong process of turning in a Godward direction, one day at a time. It's very interesting to see how Mary addresses Jesus. She calls him Rabboni, which John translates for us as teacher. And I think that that is so important for us, again, in terms of continually surrendering more of ourselves to Jesus. Yes, Jesus is our creator. Yes, he is our saviour. But will I allow him to be my teacher? Will I allow him access to my life and day by day be transformed more and more into his image? And also we see that Jesus wants his relationship with Mary to be different from now on. I think that's what verse 17 is all about. Mary is so pleased to see Jesus and she's so frightened that he will leave her again that she holds on tightly to his feet so that he can't even move. And so Jesus has to say to her, don't hold on to me. I haven't yet ascended to my father. I'm going to be around for a bit longer. You don't have to be afraid. Jesus asks Mary to take him on his terms and not to write her own agenda, not to run on ahead of him. He asks her to let him take control of her life, to let him be God in her life. And he asks the same of us too. The final thing that Jesus asks Mary is to go and to be his witness. Verses 17 and 18. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. I think it's important to see that Mary didn't have to get a degree in theology 
She didn't have to go on an eight-week course on how to share the gospel. She simply told the disciples her experience. And we looked at this in our sermon last week. In these incredibly uncertain times, God is calling on us to be a witness through the things that we do and the things that we say. Just in little things like a WhatsApp message or a phone call, an email or waving to someone across the street, offering to do the shopping for a neighbour. We have the incredible privilege this morning of saying to the people around us, I have seen the Lord. And talking about Jesus to others really solidifies our own faith. The Alcoholics Anonymous movement has brought a great deal of help and healing to many people. As some of you know, it's a 12-step program towards recovery. And the 12th step in Alcoholics Anonymous program says this, Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we try to carry this message to others and to practice these principles in all our affairs. And the implication is that if the alcoholic wants to stay on the road to recovery, they have to share what they have received. Trevor Hudson uh, puts it this way in one of his books. I believe that this principle also holds true for those who are wanting to follow Christ. We need to pass on the good news that he has touched our lives. And when we do this, our faith continues to grow and deepen. When we don't, it often shrivels up and dies. This could be why my prayer counsellor on the night of my first public commitment to Jesus insisted, Trevor, please make sure that you tell someone as soon as you can about the step that you've just taken tonight. He must have known that sharing Christ with others makes him more real to us as well. But of course, we don't only share our faith because it keeps us spiritually alive. We share our faith because Jesus insists that we do so. And so Jesus encounters us on this Easter Sunday morning in just the same way that he encountered Mary Magdalene. The resurrected Lord Jesus Christ is here this morning in all his power and all his glory. He knows about our pain, about our fear, about our uncertainty, and he invites us to share it with him today. He calls us by name, and in doing that he reminds us that he longs for a personal relationship with us, He invites us to turn towards him and to constantly and daily align our lives with his life. He calls us to make him our teacher and our Lord and to allow him to be God in our lives. And then he sends us out to share this good news with others, to be Easter people in a Good Friday world. May God bless you. Amen.